So, okay, I thought I would talk about my current thinking about computation and our interaction with it. So, first question is, how common is computation? People have the general view that, you know, to make something do computation is lots of effort and you have to, like, build microprocessors and things like this. One of the things that I discovered, actually, a long time ago now, is that it's actually very easy to get sophisticated computation. Almost, uh, I studied cellular automata, you can study Turing machines, other kinds of things. Uh, as soon as you have a system whose behavior is not obviously simple, you end up getting something which is as sophisticated computationally as it can be. It's not a, th this is something which is not an obvious fact, I think. I call it the principle of computational equivalence. And it's something that is, at some level, it's a, a thing for which one can get progressive evidence. You just start looking at very simple systems, whether they're cellular automata, Turing machines, lots of other kinds of things, and you say, does this system actually do sophisticated computation or not? And the surprising discovery is that as soon as what it's doing is not something that you can obviously kind of decode, then in one can see, in particular cases at least, that it is capable of doing as sophisticated computation as anything. So, for example, it means it's a universal computer and so on. So, the thing that that implies is that sort of sophisticated computation is all around us. It's not something that we humans have very, you know, sophisticatedly produced in our technology. It's something that happens in nature, something that happens in simple mathematical systems and so on. And it seems like there's this, this sort of one level of sophisticated computation, which is kind of the, the, the Turing level of sophisticated computation that we see in all these different kinds of systems, whether ultimately physics and the fundamental rules of the universe uh, operate in a way that goes beyond that, we don't yet know. I happen to think they don't. Many physicists believe they do. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's a, a still unresolved question. But OK, so you have this sophisticated computation, and it's happening everywhere. And uh, one of the questions then is, is what can you do with the sophisticated computation? So what, when we use computation today, most of what we end up doing is as human engineers, for example, we end up saying, OK, this is the thing I'm trying to achieve. Let me write a program by following a series of steps where I can kind of foresee what's going to happen and I progressively create this program. Uh, the thing I've been interested in for a long time is kind of just mining the computational universe of possible programs to find ones that are useful for particular purposes. And it's, it's quite a, a humbling thing as a, as a human because you find these things out in the computational universe that, are, uh, that you can tell do very sophisticated things, but as a human, it's really hard to understand what it does. And you're, you're stuck looking at it and saying, that's really clever but it's just this little simple rule that one found by searching a, a, a wide space of these things. So, I mean, my, my view of sort of computation is, occurs all over the place, occurs in lots of systems in nature. Um, the, the question then is, we've got this uh, sort of amazing source of sophisticated processes. The question then is, how do we relate those to kind of things we humans care about? Um, and so the, I think the challenge, and you see it in kind of searching the computational universe for useful programs, is you've got to define what you want. Um, and then you can go and uh, get that thing done by some appropriate program out from this computational universe. So, so the thing I've been interested in for a long time is given the sort of uh, supply, the sort of ocean of computational capability out there, um, how do we connect what's possible 
with that ocean of computational capability with what us humans want to do. And so that's led me to spend, uh, well, now about three and a half decades um, trying to create kind of computational languages that can express uh, the things that we humans want to do and can kind of uh, uh, have those be interpreted using the things that are possible in this kind of computational universe. So I kind of view the, um, uh, uh, it's, it's not so difficult to achieve, it's, it's easy to achieve sophisticated computation. The challenge is to uh, craft the computation that you actually, to pick the computation that turns out to be useful for some human purpose. So then the question is, well, what's going to be useful for some human purpose? Well, it depends on what we, what we want to do. People wonder, you know, what is AI going to automate in the world? Well, one of the things that sort of almost by definition is not automatable is the answer to what do we want to do. The, the doing of things may be automatable. The, the deciding of what we want to do is something that almost by definition is something that it depends on, you know, who's deciding that and it depends on, uh, you know, the, the human having come out of sort of some long history of, of, um, uh, of civilization or whatever to, to do that. But so, so a thing that I've been interested in is kind of how do we, how do we define the, sort of the set of things that we want to do? How do we think about the kinds of abstractions that it's worthwhile to define? You know, in human language, for example, uh, we end up coming up with particular kinds of abstractions that are based on the things that are common in our world and as a somewhat circular kind of thing because the abstractions that we come up with then define what we choose to build in our world which then allow us to go on and, and, uh, and create more levels of abstraction. And this, this phenomenon of kind of, uh, you know, you take a, a set of things you want to do, you build abstractions from them, you then uh, go to more levels beyond that is something that plays out in the design of computational languages. Um, and, uh, you know, I've watched that play out a bunch of times. But this, so one question is kind of how do we think about this kind of, um, the, the progressive levels of abstraction that we use to talk about things. So, for example, one, one application of that question is, uh, you know, um, for education. You know, you, you're asking the question, how much stuff is there to know in the world? Um, it could be the case that as we accumulate more knowledge, um, there's just always more and more to know, and it's, gosh, you know, the humans become incapable of learning it. But actually, that's not what happens, because uh, after a while, uh, all the details of something get abstracted away, and all we have to talk about is some abstraction, and then we build from that. So it's a, it's a question of sort of what does this frontier abstraction look like? What does that then mean in terms of, of what, we, uh, what we choose to build in, in technology, for example, which is defined by what we think is worth doing and what we imagine uh, we want to do? There's sort of this interesting moment that we're at with... with um, uh, uh, you know, of sort of how information gets communicated. Um, you know, when human language, for example, has this feature that we are, you know, taking some thoughts in our brains, we're trying to make some kind of simplified symbolic representation of those thoughts that can then be communicated to another brain which will unpack them and, 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 and do something with them. Uh, with computational language, we have a more direct way of communicating because we have something where... Uh, once that there's, there's it's sort of a, a uh, w once we have the thing represented in computational language, we can immediately run it. We don't have to interpret it in another brain. But so I've been sort of interested in the question of um, uh, what, what 
sort of features of, of civilization get enabled by computational language um, in the kind of, by analogy, what features of the world got enabled by, by human language and uh, you know, the, the fact that it's possible to pass on abstract ideas from one generation to another is presumably a consequence of the existence of, of human language. It's not something that we, we get to do um, by, uh, you know, that, that's the way that we communicate abstract ideas. Um, and so sort of a question of what, what can you do if, uh, for example, uh, uh, people, um, uh, if one can communicate in computational language, um, that has uh, um, what consequences does that have? Whether it's um, uh, you know there, there are simple consequences like, for instance, uh, I've been quite involved in the whole business of computational contracts of representing. You know, right now when people make contracts with each other, they write those contracts in some approximation of human language, some legalese or something, which is an attempt to make a sort of precise representation of what you want to have happen and what you're defining should be the case. Um, if one can make a computational language that can represent things in the world richly enough to be able to talk about the kinds of things that are in contracts, and we can now do that, um, then you have sort of a different story about how you can uh, create things like contracts. One, one place where that's relevant is if you're interested in you know, telling your AIs how you want them to act, so to speak. What you end up with is something which is kind of like a computational contract with the AIs. You know, you have to write some sort of constitution for your AIs or something, um, which will have all of the messiness of, of, uh, of, of human laws. I mean, it's sort of an inevitable consequence of this whole business of principle of computational equivalence and computational irreducibility and so on, that you can never, uh, if you want the world to, if you want any kind of richness in the, in the activities of these uh, uh, devices, you, you can't, uh, you, you'll never be able to just have some simple Asimov-like laws of robotics. It will always be the case that there will be uh, sort of unexpected consequences and things that you have to patch and things where you can't know what will happen um, without, uh, uh, without explicitly running the, the, the system and so on. So, but in any case, that, that's, that's one place where this kind of computational language idea uh, seems to be important is in, is in kind of defining um, what our goals are uh, the goals that we want to set up for um, uh, for AIs and things like that. You know, I, I, I had imagined that this would be more of a discussion rather than me just yakking on about stuff. Um, I mean, there's so many different um, um, things to, uh, um, uh, to to say about this. Um, I mean, the, the, the real... Let's discuss. Yes. <laughs> what do you mean by constitution when you say you... Uh... No, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think the... the I think it's actually a really difficult thing to imagine really working in any serious way. I mean, the issue is, you know, you have an AI and you're running your central bank using an AI, for example. And the question is, what, is, what are the general set of guidelines that you want to put in place for what you want this AI to do? And these are obviously old questions of political philosophy, so to speak, which don't have, you know, which don't have definitive answers. They, you know, it sort of depends on what the humans, uh, for the time being, it depends on what the humans want. There's no, you know, I was, I was curious in, in Ian's discussion about sort of the, the, uh, the more perfect ethics, so to speak, of his constructed consciousness. You know, where do those perfect ethics come from? Because there isn't, it's, it's unlike, you know, the, whereas we might be able to say, uh, 
you know, we can find an optimal solution to this mathematical problem. There is, I think, no meaningful sense in which there is an ultimate ethics, so to speak. It's not a, a, um, uh, it's not a thing in the same way that there's no sense in which there's an ultimate goal. I mean, in other words, we can, we can say, given that you want something to do this or that thing, there's an, there's an optimal way to achieve it. But if we say, well, what do we want it to achieve? It's not the case that sort of in the... In the so, so one thing I've been curious about is um, if we look at sort of the evolution of human purposes over the course of history, um, there's a question of sort of how that's worked and, you know, what the end point of the evolution of human purposes might be, you know, both, both in terms of what the stages of... of um, uh, sort of, and it relates to this question about progressive abstraction because the kinds of purposes that we now define for ourselves are completely bizarre from the point of view of what they might have been a thousand years ago. But why do you use the term endpoint? I wouldn't. I would think there isn't necessarily. No, I don't think there's an endpoint. I think okay, it's a, an endless okay. frontier. I mean, I think it's a. It's yeah. the same question. So that there are many related kinds of questions. Like, for example, let's say you're doing mathematics. There's a question: Is there an end to mathematics? Well, no, not really. You can keep adding um, more theorems and so on. The question is, um, is there an end to interesting mathematics? In other words, is there a point at which all the interesting theorems, the ones that we humans might care about, have been found, and everything else is just stuff that, that for whatever reason, we humans don't care about? And so I think that, again, relates to this question about abstraction. Is it, is it, so my, my current view of that is that if you look at the history of mathematics, it's in part a, I mean, there's a considerable degree of arbitrariness to what's happened, but one thing that isn't arbitrary is that you know, there's one piece of abstraction that gets built, and then that's a stepping stone that allows you to get to another piece of abstraction and so on. But there's, there's really a non-trivial question of whether it's like, you know, have all the interesting inventions already been made, or are there going to be other interesting inventions to be made in the future? And that, this question of what counts as interesting, what do we care about, again, uh, is, a, is a complicated circular thing because the things, uh, you know, we, we build, you know, the fact that, I don't know, we have, let's say, social networks, okay, something that one might not have imagined would exist. Now they exist and there's all kinds of sort of uh, things built on top of social networks that are another layer of abstraction and so No, but it's not completely circular. For example, evolution tells us, gives us a reason for wanting good health. For what? Wanting good health. Okay. Well, so, so, so you're saying so. So the kind of existential purpose of, um, you know, if you don't exist, you don't get to have a purpose. That's clearly, you know, that is the the one thing that is right. um, uh, uh, is certainly there. But in in terms of no, I mean, you know, in the, in in the course of history, you know, certainly people have had times where they say the most important thing is to die well, for example, which is not. You know, it doesn't happen to be the, you know, the typical modern point of view. But, um, uh, so, you know, I think it's not, it's, it's, um, uh, but you, you asked what do I mean by, I mean, I think the, the question is, you know, you're building a self-driving car, you want to tell it roughly how to think about the world, right? What do you do? So people have these sort of naive ideas that, that there's going to be a sort of mathematical theorem-like solution to that like laws of robotics or something. It's just not going to work. It can't work. I think one thing that's really interesting that's ha happened partly as a result of AI is that there's actually people proving that you can't get systems. You know, this is not something high and existential about what are, what are, what, what are the things that we want, that if we want relative equality in judging, making decisions about how you grant more mortgages, for example, 
that it's literally computationally not possible to have all the things that we think are important about fairness, for example, being implemented by the same system. That there's just inevitable trade-offs between one kind of fairness that we all have very strong intuitions is important and another kind of fairness that we all have really strong intuitions are important. And there's, there's really lovely formal work showing it's not just that we don't know what it is that we want. We, even if we know really clearly and we have really strong intuitions that this is what we want, you can't get a single system that's going to optimize for all of that. And in a way, it's like a formal, I, I was going to mention that in terms of Ian's talk as well, proof of the Isaiah Berlin picture of uh, a kind of moral pluralism, not just a moral pluralism, but a kind of tragic moral pluralism where it's impossible to actually optimize all the things that you genuinely think are, are, are morally significant. You know, one of the things that I find a lot of fun about the current time is that, you know, in the beginning it's philosophy, in the end it's code. That is, you know, at some point these things that start off as philosophical discussions end up, somebody has to write a piece of code, basically. That represents what's that? Not necessarily. <laughs> Just let it go. <laughs> we'll let it do what it does. Yeah, well, but you, you, a neural net, you don't write code for it. You effectively write code, you're defining what you, the, the whole point is this, this issue of whether you're explicitly writing line by line code yes. or whether you're merely defining the goals that you want to achieve and then having the machine automatically figure out how to achieve those goals. Either way, you're defining something. I mean, the role of computational language is to be able to specify, is to be able to convert what, at least my view of it is, it's converting how we think about things into something that is computationally understandable. That's a very broad use of the word code. I mean, it's like saying you code a baby. Sort of no, no, by, by code I mean <laughs> you put in concrete form, there is a definite symbolic representation of what you want. And it's not some sort of vague discussion about, you know, um, uh, argumentation between philosophers. It's actually, there's this piece of code, and... No, but it know, doesn't have to be that. If you have a sophisticated artificial intelligence, you could just talk to it. Tell but, the, but the other <laughs> reflection of what Allison... But going back to what Allison was saying, I mean, isn't our conception, our intuitive conception of ethics, how you get there? So telling a neural net vaguely, go in this direction, may not at all address the moral pluralisms of how it gets there. So, you know, lower population, right? This would be a general direction. Like, the Earth will be better if you lower human population. I mean, how it gets there is the sure. entire ethical question. Right, but that's why, that's why um, one talks about, you know, needing constitutions and things, because you, you're trying to define what happens at every step. I know it's, um, you have to be very careful about <laughs> coding. Well, I think, I think this is actually, I, I think, made the point that you, even being careful about it is not sufficient. Yeah, that's right. And what you have to recognize, in fact, is that this whole notion of things acting according to the goal that we want them to is a kind of oversimplification, is a way that we model other people, is a way that we model ourselves. And in fact, it's not actually a very good model. And it's sort of built into the whole cybernetic perspective on things. But the truth of the matter is people don't really want a set of consistent things. And so by definition, there's no way to you know, get a machine to do it. There's a, there's a very striking thing in, in Aristotle where he, he sort of, for a very slight moment, considers the possibility of making intelligent machines. Where he says, he says, you know, the problem with tools 
is that they don't actually know what they're trying to accomplish. <laughs> and one could imagine in principle that you could have a loom that knew what pattern it was trying to weave or a plow that knew you know, where the field was. He says, but as far as we know, those don't exist. And so they'll always be slaves. And then he sort of goes <laughs> off and writes a book on slavery. But he at least sort of considers it, and he realizes this, the essential thing that you have to have is a goal. And uh, right, right. I mean, you know, so one point is, what is computation without goals? So the answer is, nature is an example of computation without goals. I mean, what we see happening in the natural world. I mean, you know, one of these sort of anti-scientific statements. You know, the weather has a mind of its own, right? You know, according to you know, a bunch of science I've done and things about this principle of computational equivalence and so on, it really is, in any reasonable sense, the case that the weather is doing just the same kinds of computations as happen in our, happen in our brains. Um, you look very skeptical, but, but um, it's, uh, I mean, this is, uh, um, you know, and, and, and you well, can... Nature has extremal principles. It doesn't have goals. But, but it has a few. Oh, that's, that's a month. So, so the, the, okay. So the, the, you know, so the issue is we, I mean, in any kind of thing we see happening in the world, we can explain it in terms of its mechanism, or we can explain it in terms of. I mean, you can you can talk about its 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 purpose or its mechanism. So you can you can say you know the trajectory of a ball that's thrown is a parabola because at every moment it's following the equations of motion for the for the ball and, and doing what it does. Or you can say, you know, there's a principle of least action that says that the, you know, overall thing is this parabola. And almost anything you come up with, you, you'll be able to have an explanation of it in terms of its mechanism or an explanation in terms of its purpose. And which explanation you choose to say is the right explanation is a question often of sort of the economy of explanation. But it's not the case that things, that there's a set of things where you say, this one has a purpose, this one just has a mechanism. I think you know, one of the things that's interesting is that, I mean, you, I think the whole premise of moral philosophy is that there are these contradictions and that we can't, we don't live in the Panglossian world where fairness and equality and, and meritocratic uh, adjustment Only because Pinker's not here. And uh, don't, uh, don't, aren't compatible with one another. But often when we talk about the, the goals or ambitions of epistemic virtues for the sciences, we act as if they're all compatible, but it, it often is not the case. That is to say that uh, robustness, uh, precision, accuracy, understandability, uh, portability, all these things that we might think of, or pedagogical utility, that they all should pull in the same direction, but they often don't. So there's a nice and, and so, you know, I think that one of the things that we need to do is to recognize that there's the same level of sophisticated trade-offs or, or decisions that we have to make in what we want uh, from the sciences as we have in the moral yeah. sciences. So I was going to say, it's one of the most interesting bits at the core of machine learning are no free lunch theorems. I mean, there's free lunches here. <laughs> but in machine learning, the no free lunch theorems are a very precise way to say that um, something that's optimal for, some, for something is bad at something else. And you can really show how you can't be good at everything. And you have to choose. You know, just one plus I commented on what you said before, Neil, and, and, and you were saying, so you, is in the late 19th century, uh, there was a big debate about purpose and mechanism. And there was a whole group of German scientists who began to talk about what you might call teleomechanism, where they saw that the, they saw no, they were very explicit about the fact that they were, that nature had goals and it was mechanistic. 
and they, there was not a contradiction among them. That really, that recognizing in a way this free choice that we have between writing extremal principles or mechanistic descriptions, and they saw that as important to to to, to consider together. It's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. You should tell me who those people were. Yeah. I'm curious about the history. There's a book by Timothy Lenoir called uh, "Teleomechanism" is in the title, and um, L E N O I R. And uh, he, a history of that. the principle of least action was religious. It was a fight. It, it wasn't just back at the time of Maubert Tweed. Yeah, it wasn't just alternate schools. It was a real religious battle. Actually, along Allison, what are these? Um, these results that you're talking about, about showing that these systems can't actually supply, you know, right. all the principles of them. Are these like these arrow impossibility theorems for for voting that, you know, perfectly sort reasonable of, things yeah, cannot be put together at the that's, same time? They're very, that, they've got a very similar structure to that. So, <laughs> so uh, Cynthia Dwork is one of the people uh -huh. who's done who's done a lot of uh, uh -huh. a lot of work on this, particularly on along the lines of thinking about inequalities, right. where you want and fairness. So. Yeah. You know, do you want fairness between groups? Do you want fairness among individuals? And it, they're exactly like the kind of arrow. They're, they have the same kind of structure as the arrow theorems, uh -huh. where you can't, you you literally in principle can't maximize all of those ends at the same time. It's, it's and I do think that, I mean, to echo what Neil was saying, I think that's a general principle. We tend to have a kind of idealist picture about computation, and I think it's important that the idea that you're dealing with trade-offs all the time, that that's a very different that's a very different picture, and maybe more like a picture that comes from from some uh, Enlightenment traditions about philosophy than other Enlightenment traditions about philosophy, for example. It, it's a sad fact about axiomatization of almost anything that people start feeding in all these axioms that they say it better be true that this is this happens and this happens, and in the end, like. In quantum field theory, for example, there were these axioms, and then it turned out the only quantum field theory consistent with all these axioms was a free quantum field theory. So in other, wor in other words, a, where there were no interactions between particles. And that things. was sad, I agree. That was sad. I was part of it. It's a very common thing that happens. You know, it's not the case. Which, which axioms? What QCD satisfies all the axioms? What about the asymptotic states? The yeah, things? Well, the, the, the asymptotic states are not so, there's, a sense, there's a sense here in which I think we're trying to hold machines to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to, right? That we're, 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 you know, saying, I mean, I think this, this distinction between purpose and mechanism is interesting because I think we like to think that other people have purposes, but in fact other people mostly have mechanisms, right? And so I think that's part of our intuition about sort of moral psychology that's leading us into problems here is that thinking that there is a system that we should be able to formalize, right, and that we, we should all be behaving in accord with, when in fact none of us do so. Right? You know, but there's I a little thought experiment that you might find amusing. So it's a question of, you know, how does computation relate to democracy, okay? So it's, um, it's a silly thought experiment at some level, but it's maybe interesting. The, you know, so in current democracy, people just say, you know, it's a multiple choice thing, you vote for A, B, or C, or whatever. But imagine a time when people, when people can routinely sort of speak in computational language as well as in human language, and where it's perfectly possible for somebody to say, this is what I want to have be the case in the world. I'm going to write this kind of computational essay that is my representation of what I want to be the, you know, to be the case in the world. And then imagine that you, you know, that, you know, 100 million people just take their computational essays and feed them into this big AI that's going to figure out what policy should be followed. 
that's sort of a, an alternative to the, the current version of kind of, you, you know, you pick from a small number of choices. But the, the question with that, I mean, it, it throws you directly into all of the, you know, the standard issues of political philosophy of what are you actually trying to achieve. But it's kind of a, a somewhat realistic view of this is what could happen because you, you can actually, by the time you have a computational language that can sort of talk about things in the real world, it's perfectly possible for people to you know, represent their preferences in that much richer way. Um, so I, I thought... I think right here is where you're going to come up against some of these uh, theorems in social choice theory. I mean, if everyone's just offering a global vision of the world and we pick one, well, okay, that's totally, totally unworkable. We've got to find some kind of yes. compromise or consideration of components. So, okay, so we break it down into... Ten separate issues, um, you know, A, B, C, D. But then we, we come up against these results and say, okay, well, there's a majority that prefers A, and there's a majority that prefers if A then B. But there's not a majority that prefers B. So okay, so um, you can't just go with democracy on every on every component, and suddenly we need some uh, some system for uh, somehow extrapolating from all these That's individual right. preferences. And this is precisely where you need to find find ways to make the uh, to make the trade-offs. Yeah, right. I mean. I mean, this whole thing of turning morality into code is, is not a—it's not a new—not uh, a new problem, right? The legal code and the political code has is, is precisely been trying to formalize this for uh, for centuries. And what do we know? It's only the only way to do it is via a huge mess. So I, I predict that once you try and turn it into AI code, no, no, I agree. It's be a mess. I agree. The, the the main conclusion is that it has to be a huge mess. Well, the, good the arrows. <laughs> the arrows theorem actually ends up with the positive result, which is that the only way. Consistent code is to have a dictator, and to me, this is <laughs> that is very positive indeed, Frank. <laughs> Thank God, <laughs> dodged a bullet there. <laughs> you shouldn't always try to be too rational. Uh, Chomsky had this concept I find quite beautiful of crackpot rationalism. Rationalism is taking you into things that obviously are bad. You should just back off and let, let the world do its thing. And in fact, <laughs> <laughs> thank you.